welcome to a community night, Tuesday with Young Urban Zen. My name is Kodo. Something I want to say at the, uh, at the end of tonight's talk, something I'm pretty excited about, some details about uh, what will be our first in-person community night since 2020. Yes, I'm excited. Uh, if you want to stay up to date, um, I'm sure there will be announcements here. Uh, and also you can check out yuz-sf.org and I'll make sure details are posted there. So the theme for tonight um, comes out of comes out of a recognition that we practice almost always in imperfect conditions, um, so to speak. And I want to talk particularly about um, practicing our our ethical training in in the in the Dharma when conditions aren't totally optimal. <laughs> so I want to open this up uh, first by telling a little story. Something that happened at City Center just over a, a week ago. Uh, on April 23rd, 2022, uh, a ceremony took place and the officiating priest who was there, Reverend Lian Shat, who's the, the teacher for access to Zen, in the middle of the ceremony, she said, this is a historic moment for San Francisco Zen Center. And what she was commenting on and went on to explain is it was the first uh, lay precept initiation ceremony in which both the officiating priest and all of the people receiving the precepts that day were BIPOC in SFCC's history. Um, yeah, she named, she named that and yeah, yeah, I could clearly tell it, it, it had some meaning, meaning for her. And the ceremony starts uh, this really beautiful way. Uh, it, it has this line, in faith that we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. It's the introduction to the ceremony, and the ceremony is the one of giving and receiving the precepts, and that is that is the transmission of the ethical training of Zen. Um, it's the it's the way that the the tradition of Zen gets transmitted to the next generation. It's the way the generation carries on with the practice of Zen, zazen and the precepts. Um, and then it's once they're given, it's totally up to the next generation to to maintain them, keep them up, and be be a model for how to live, how to live this ethical training. Why would someone want to do that? <laughs> um, for some, there's a there's a real call in this direction uh, toward a deepening commitment to Zen practice that takes the form of this sort of ceremony of commitment, which you you do publicly. Uh, with uh, the Zen community. I think on a personal level, there's also this appeal of learning how to live a life that doesn't harm as best we can. Um, maybe colloquially, uh, we, we, take these sorts of we take these sorts of commitments so we can sleep at night. <laughs> uh, 
Of course, there's the benefit for future generations, the modeling of virtue, the passing them on. And then one of the one of the most ancient teachings about these practices, the ethical training of the Dharma, the ethical training of, of Zen and of Buddhism, is that they directly undermine the forces of ignorance and clinging in our own minds and allow us to live a life of less suffering. In a very clear way, when you commit to them, you start practicing, that you start to see a mind that has behaved ethically it tends to be untroubled or less troubled. And an untroubled mind is ready for concentration. A concentrated mind sees things as they are. Pretty good. So you have uh, Reverend Lee and Shep in the Buddha Hall at, uh, at City Center, where we have our Tuesday community nights in the past. And you have these three initiates, these three bodhisattvas, awakening beings, taking, taking the vows. And they recite these 10 grave precepts. I want to emphasize these today uh, because these um, I've heard playfully called uh, the rubber hits the road precepts. Um, the, the, the three preceding these are called pure precepts and they, um, they can land in a more abstract way, but you'll hear these when I, when I name them. So these 10 grave precepts are, I vow not to kill. The second is, I vow not to take what isn't given. Third is, I vow not to misuse sexuality. Fourth is, I vow not to lie. Fifth, I vow not to intoxicate the mind or body of self or others. Sixth, I vow not to slander. Seventh, I vow not to praise self at the expense of others. Eighth, I vow not to be avaricious. Ninth, I vow not to harbor ill will. And tenth, I vow not to disparage the three treasures of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I think in short, to summarize, commitments, these are, these are ten commitments to a path of not harming that form at, uh, the basis of an ethical training based on a very simple insight that our actions have an effect on ourselves and others. They're sort of a practice of a lifetime that grows beyond themselves. Um, one way I think of them playfully is kind of like these 10 grave precepts are a bit like, a bit like the musical scales we learn before we grow into performing Bach or Charles Mingus. They're a training we can grow with and uh, that can be a basis of an artful life that's full of choice. So where this gets really interesting, to my mind, is um, there's a certain way we can hear these as ideal. Uh, it, it can really easily slip into, oh, uh, I have to be perfect and this is the formula. Or um, there's a right way to do this. I'm going to do it, and uh, anyone who doesn't is doing it wrong. All sorts of things that can come up. Um, this idea that, we, that, that can arise in relationship to the precepts that we have to be perfect all the time might be reinforced even by something like a, like a, a teaching by Dogen. This one from a, a, a fascicle called Speaking of Mind, Speaking of Essence. 
and the founder in Japan, Ehei Dogen, writes, even if you're closely engaged in rigorous practices, you may not hit one mark out of 100. <laughs> That's, uh, that seems to be egging on toward perfection, right? And yet, he goes on to say, immediately. But, by following a teacher or following a sutra, you may finally hit the mark. This hitting a mark is due to the missing of 100 marks in the past. It is the maturing of missing 100 marks in the past. And what I hear in this, in this little bit, the maturing of 100 missed marks in the past, nothing is wasted. Every little bit of effort, every little bit of effort supports the practice. So a different little story about missing or hitting the mark. There was a, there was a Japanese monk named Koben Chino. Uh, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Koben Chino Roshi. Uh, he was invited uh, by Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, uh, to come, uh, come help <laughs> in 1967. I believe, I believe explicitly to come help at Tassajara. And he was, he was uh, directly involved with Zen Center until 1970 when he um, went to found some other places um, in, the, in the network, including Jikoji. So this is a story about Kobenchino Roshi told by um, Roshi Joan Halifax of Upaya Zen Center. And her recollection goes like this. As a master of Zen archery, Coben was asked to teach a course at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. The target was set up on a beautiful grassy area on the edge of a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Coben took his bow, notched the arrow, took careful aim and shot. The arrow sailed high over the target went past the railing beyond the cliff, only to plunge into the ocean far beyond. Coben looked happily at the shocked students and shouted, Bullseye. <laughs> uh, there's something in, something to learn about our, our precept practice and Cobanchino's view that's broader than what we might assume. You know, the... Um, the perfection we might feel in relation to the precepts is like hitting hitting the bullseye right on the target. Cobanchino seemingly deliberately aims to a wider bullseye, straight into the ocean. I also appreciate that there's some sense of humor here. I have to, I have to, uh, I'm projecting, but I have to imagine there was some little bit of entertainment for Cobanchino in this uh, in this stunt. What I take out of this broader view, though, for us as we're thinking about the precepts, is there, it, there is a way to look at them where we're not practicing perfection, but instead we're engaging together as a community, as a sangha, in lifelong learning. And I think that, think that this helps, helps uh, maintain our trust with each other. As uh, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams put it, uh, this is a practice. It's not a perfect. Or the recently passed Thich Nhat Hanh says it's not a tool, it's a path. 
So one of the ways I've seen the, uh, the precepts arise in my own practice in a way that, that's been really useful for me is um, each of the 10 will arise as a reference point. Um, it's kind of like, uh, here, I have a simple story. When I, when I went to do residential training at uh, Vipassana Center some years ago, it was my first residential training. And uh, I, was, I was there for most of a year. I had grown up in a place, many bugs, lots of swatting of mosquitoes, and uh, um, when I moved to this center, I started to take these precepts at the beginning of every retreat. I vow not to kill, I vow not to steal, misuse sexuality, not to lie, not to intoxicate. So uh, at the doorway, at every doorway of the different buildings at this meditation center where I was living, was something called an insect relocation device. That insect relocation device comprised, was comprised of a yogurt container and a laminated sheet of paper. <laughs> uh, and the message was clear, right? Like we take these vows not to kill and we take them seriously. They extend, they extend to the insects. And there's some wisdom here. You know, it, it, it's a sort of a playful story, but there's some wisdom in the fact that um, the, the actions, actions that seem even small, they have an effect on the mind and on the body. So here I am next to a doorway and there is a scorpion. And I'm like, that's scary. And I need to do something about this. Uh, I have, I have both the impulse, like the protector impulse comes up and is like, oh, I need to make sure that this is, this is eliminated and won't hurt anyone. And at the same time, the reference point comes up and is like, oh, I vow not to kill. And they have this little like bzz, bzz, moment of tension in my mind, rubbing up next to each other. And I decide I'm going to use the insect relocation device. So like plop on top with the cup slide the piece of paper underneath, take the bug outside. But in this way, the precept becomes a reference point that kind of shows up when we need it uh, by, by sort of repeatedly engaging with them, even just repeating them to ourselves regularly. Uh, they come up when we need them. So in the spirit of, of practicing not toward perfection, but toward greater integration and sort of seeing, seeing some of the common pitfalls and how we can grow, we can grow beyond this idea of perfection in relationship to the precepts. Uh, I'm going to borrow a teaching from Andrea Fela, who is, uh, who's an insight teacher that teaches daily life practices. And she's talking about um, establishing mindfulness throughout your day and different ways to do that. And here she's using the, the term reference point in regard to some activity we do a lot, like open a door, um, go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, something we do regularly as like a sort of trigger for mindfulness. But as I'm reading her instruction, you can take reference point and think, ah, precept. So this is what she says. When you first start working with a reference point, standing up, for example, Probably you will stand up many times before you remember. You might remember only when you go to bed at night. 
The fact that you haven't remembered all day long is not a problem. That moment of remembering is equivalent to the moment in sitting meditation when you remember that your mind has wandered off of the breathing. In that moment we know, here I am, and I've forgotten to do the thing that I set my mind to do. That moment's not an indication that you can't do the practice. In fact, it's just the opposite. The first time you remember that you have not noticed your reference point is the moment that you can practice. So in that moment of remembering, take stock of what's happening right then and there, because mindfulness has returned. Notice what's happening in a very light and simple way. Notice how your body is situated, or perhaps notice whether the mind is agitated or calm. Just notice some simple things about what's going on, and in that moment also resolve to try again to remember. Over the course of a few days, you might notice more frequently during the day that you haven't been noticing your task. If you notice four or five times during the day, that is four or five moments of mindfulness you probably would not have had. She goes on, there's no need to judge yourself for not remembering the actual task. The task itself is a reference point to help you remember, so you can begin to know how mindful you actually are during the day. At some point you'll notice your reference point right after it happens, right after you stood up, for example. So the remembering and the mindfulness is getting closer to, to the experience. And at some point, you'll be completely aware right as you're standing up. At that point, this task might start to serve as a mindfulness bell for you. The action itself begins to trigger mindfulness. So my comment is that um, engaging with the precepts as a reference point, not as a measuring stick of perfection, we begin by forgetting. Um, and then they, they start to make their way in just through repeated, uh, repeated resolve. We get to the end of the day, we realize, oh, today I, we, we might take stock and be like, oh, today I, uh, oh, I actually, I killed some bug. I told something that was, I said something that wasn't true. Um, I praised myself at the expense of someone else. And I didn't realize while I was doing it, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give, I'm going to give some effort to being um, attentive to this when it comes up next time. So to forget is not a mistake, and it's part of the process. And through maintaining, maintaining persistence, maintaining resolve, uh, the, the precepts start to integrate into our lives as reference points. I really appreciate how this, this approach um, de-emphasizes shame and self-recrimination and keeps the trust and honesty and intimacy up in our community. So forgetfulness is one thing, but then there's um, maybe the more difficult thing, which is how to practice the precepts with strong emotions. Um, I'm appreciative of a, a t-shirt that one of the residents at City Center wears from time to time, and these hot pink letters that says, I'm not perfect, just so no one gets the wrong idea. Working with strong emotions is really difficult. Like, uh, like how 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 appealing has it been uh, when you're angry and hurt to slander someone, or when you're sad? How appealing is it to distract or intoxicate? Or 
when you're scared? What sort of things come up? A driving question here is like, what sort of actions and words have felt attractive to me while I'm under the influence of uh, really strong emotions or of pride or the intoxication of self-conceit? This is a difficult topic, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at it from a few different ways. And the, the first way I want to approach it is, um, is to highlight the power of simple awareness over time to um, undermine the connection between a strong emotion and the impulse to act. So um, the practice looks something like when I notice that anger is present in me and I feel that compulsion pausing and to clearly know as it's happening, this is the feeling of the compulsion. This is the feeling of anger. And that little moment of awareness is like a drop of water in the bucket and over time starts to fill up. The impulse may still get acted upon and it might not, but there's a moment of awareness there. And that moment of awareness becomes uh, a choice point. Same thing with sadness. When, when sadness is present in me, simply to know, ah, sadness is here. Mm, to clearly know there's sadness arising in me. Same with fear uh, or greed or ill will. And through, through just that simple exercise of clearly knowing, a couple of doorways start to open up. One is this choice point thing. Whereas... Um, Whereas before, without our knowing it, we're completely taken over by the impulse and we act before we know it. But here we're introducing just little by little, we're adding a tiny bit of awareness to the equation, a tiny bit of awareness to the system. Then over time, we sort of get familiar. Oh, these, this is the emotion. This is how it acts upon me. This is the, these are the sensations that arise. These are the thoughts that I have. These are the motivations that come. And seeing all these different parts and its effects on us, we start to tease apart, actually, the emotion itself and its effects. So there's clearly knowing, clearly knowing of the strong emotion, and then there's starting to tease it apart. The second and related way in to practicing with strong emotions that can so easily like, take us away from our commitments to the precepts. You know, like I've, I've vowed, I've vowed not to, uh, slander, but like how for you, how delicious is that venom of saying something out of ill will, even to a friend, you know, uh, when, when I've been hurt, I think that's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. So. There's this approach of simple awareness and teasing apart. Second way into practicing the strong emotions is to know the power of awareness of the body. When we're intoxicated by an emotion, the body is an access point to a relative sobriety. It's a grounding. It's a place where we can actually feel those impulses arise, feel the emo emotions as a physical, uh, a physical occurrence rather than 
um, something even even more ephemeral as a, a mental occurrence or um, yeah it gives us an access point to working with emotions where we don't have to identify with them quite so strongly and again this helps the this helps the bit of choice to grow so simply to clearly know to start to tease apart and to know a strong emotion in the body can all sort of undermine the movement of impulse that takes us away from our commitment to precepts. When I was a younger and uh, maybe more idealistic monk, um, I had the idea that uh, whenever possible, I would try not to act while I was under the influence of anger or fear or greed or ill will. If I could recognize them, I would, I would refrain from making any decisions and I would refrain from speaking out of speaking or acting out of those impulses. I was a younger and <laughs> a younger and more idealistic monk at the time, and I think I think there's I think there's value in that practice. And I also have the very real question: Who has the time? Who has the time? It's not like our lives get to go on pause. When we have an emotion you know we we can in some real ways step out of a step out of a difficult situation um you know say saying to someone in a conversation you know i've got this difficult thing arising um i'm gonna go i'm gonna go take a five minute walk i'll be back and we can continue this conversation think about how much mess you don't create when you get five minutes of extra space but i think it's also realistic that um, even under the influence of ill will and greed and um, these other forces in the mind that we, we have to act, even just because of time pressure. And I think this is one of, the, one of the benefits or one of the reasons it's so helpful to have articulated precepts like these. Because they can, they can act as guides that we can rely on when we know that the thinking isn't clear. Um, they can be like, they can be like the painted lane, the paint, the painted lanes on the freeway that keep us from veering off into oncoming traffic. You know, um, it's not a, it's not, it's not, um, yeah, it's not perfect, but it is helpful such that when emotions run, run high, we can avoid causing too much harmful action if we if we have uh the precepts arise in mind if they come up as a reference point oh yeah i have this commitment to uh not harming i have this commitment to not killing not stealing not lying gives us a little bit of opportunity such that both strong emotion and ethical action can arise simultaneously. Something else that I think lends, it, lends itself in precept practice to this idea uh, of perfection is that they can seem like a whole big list of no's, like don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And I think for, a, I don't know about you, but I think for a lot of us, who wants more no's in their life? 
Um, so I think it's important to understand that they, the precepts and the practice with them are practices of restraint for the cultivation of virtues. They're like a no for the sake of a yes. For example, the first precept, the first grave precept, I vow not to kill. This is made explicit in one formulation of the precepts that I really like and I'll share with you. I vow not to kill, but to cherish all life. The no in this practice is the restraint from taking life. And it's, it's, up to, it's up to us to discern how far we take that. The no is the restraint from taking all life, and the yes is the cultivation of a compassion that cherishes all life. Or in the second precept, I vow not to take what is not given, but to give, ask for, and accept what is needed. So the no is the restraint from taking what isn't given, and the yes is the sort of open-handedness and generosity that gives and receives wisely. You can find this in all, all ten of the grave precepts. There are restraint for the sake of the cultivation of skillful and beautiful virtues. So I think there's a way that uh, emphasizing the yes, or at least bringing in the yes into, into the relationship, can shift the idea of the precepts as a practice of perfection, a measuring stick of perfection, and shift them to something aspirational so we can appreciate, uh, we can appreciate the beauty that's available through them. So a couple more thoughts. This teaching from Cobancino again. The more you sense the rareness and value of your own life, the more you realize that how you use it, how you manifest it, is all your responsibility. We face such a big task, he says. So naturally we sit down for a while. I like how Cobancino Roshi is... Um, linking the precepts in Zazen. So I think there's the possibility here, I'll just say in closing, there's the possibility here of a sort of joyful path of the precepts, a sort of joyful, joyful path in this development of ethical restraint where the precepts become a reference point for us and um, can help guide us even in, even in the most difficult times. And rather than being a measuring stick where we say, oh, my, these difficult times in my life, oh, I'm not good enough, they're not good enough, uh, actually the, the precepts come up and support us. I hope that that's so for Reverend Lian and these uh, three new bodhisattvas who committed to a life of this ethical training of the precepts. Yeah, nine or ten days ago, they made this commitment, and all of us who were in the assembly made recommitted with them. And of course, none of us will do this perfectly. And still, may it be so that we continue walking together on a path of ethical training with a mind as broad as the ocean and as good-humored as a witty phrase and that we work patiently with all of the emotions and circumstances of our lives.
I can hope that we miss the target completely and land in the ocean. Thanks to Jojo for posting the list of the Bodhisattva precepts. And I'm going to, as a sort of uh, epilogue, read them one more time, but with the, the positive formulation included. And then we can open up for some discussion. So, first, I vow not to kill, but to cherish all life. I vow not to take what is not given, but to freely give, ask for, and accept what is needed. I vow not to misuse sexuality, but to give and accept affection and friendship without clinging. I vow not to lie, but to listen and speak from the heart. I vow not to foster delusion, but to cultivate the mind of clarity. I vow not to use divisive speech, but to take responsibility for my own life. I vow not to praise self or blame others, but to meet each other on equal ground. I vow not to be possessive of anything, but to practice generosity. I vow not to indulge anger, but to accept everything as an opportunity for growth. And finally, I vow not to slander the three treasures, but to honor the Buddha, unfold the Dharma, and nourish the Sangha. Yeah, may it be so. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, everyone. And um, I'll be sure that a list of the precepts is posted with, uh, with a recording of the talk, so you, that's available for you. Um, in terms of... Uh, meeting in person. Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, if everything goes according to plan, we'll be able to have a small in-person gathering because of the venue, we'll have to cap it at 30 people, including me as the facilitator. So 30 people, two weeks from today. So um, same time, 7.15 to 8.45. Um, yeah, some updates will be sent out on the Yaz Google group, so you may want to uh, add yourself to that if you're not if you're not on it. Um, and more more details will come. the uh, The location is within walking distance of city center. We can't yet go back into the Buddha Hall. And what I'm anticipating is a sort of movement back and forth. Like we'll we'll be online and we'll be in person, and we'll be online and be in person. And the frequency of that movement we'll still figure out, but. Well, let's give this a go.